we start today's episode, just to let you know, you can now nominate for the 2025 Northern Power Women Awards. To be in with a chance of celebrating with changemakers, trailblazers and advocates on the 6th of March 2025. Nominate now at wearepower.net. Northern Power Women podcast for your career and your life, no matter what business you're in. Well, hello, I'm Sam Walker and welcome to episode 11 of the Northern Power Women podcast. This one's for the parents. This month, we hung out in Newcastle for our live podcast recording and talked about why Peppa Pig needs to up her game and also whether women choose not to apply for the highest positions in their companies. Women could be labelled as cold, bossy, pushy, difficult. I spoke to powerless phenomena Elizabeth Vega about being a senior woman in tech and the reasons why some of us seem fearless in business. The interesting thing that I have found is that uh, your parents actually are a key, uh, a key determining factor as to how brave you feel. Um, and also, I think uh, your father in particular, if you're a woman, your father's belief in you I think is a big determining factor as to whether you'll spread your wings and do something different. And in Ask the Hive, it's the age-old problem. How, from job interviews to promotions, do we sell ourselves effectively? And what must we avoid doing too? You try not to be biased, but it it really doesn't help if there's things um, that sort of stand out as do not employ me on some of your social media sites. Now, a spring, nearly, maybe... Please, finally starts to, well, spring. Let's check in with our very own busy and, of course, Queen Bee, founder of Northern Power Women, Simone Roche. It's great to be in Newcastle for episode 11 recording. Thank you to the brilliant entrepreneur hub at NatWest for so excellently hosting us. This month, we've launched Northern Power Futures, a two-day festival looking at the future of work designed by those who are going to work in it. We've held three download sessions in Newcastle, Manchester and Leeds asking our future list and their connections what and who they would like to see, hear and take action on. We are still seeking feedback so please go online or via our social channels to find the link to the survey and complete. Thank you so much in advance for your thoughts. Our peer-to-peer mentoring programme is almost at full capacity. So if you'd like to take advantage of a 12-month relationship with a matched peer, live connection events and 25 webinars, then contact us ASAP to get signed up. We've also supported Manchester Met University with their Growl project and the launch of their toolkits, including ones for young women, leadership training, mentoring and sponsorship. It's been brilliant to get involved with a number of the roundtables this month, including the British Council, West Midlands Women's Voice and Lancashire Leaders. And we're so looking forward to driving forward some of these impactful collaborations. We've had some excellent follow-up meetings across the length and breadth of the North and we'll update you as these come to fruition. Please keep your feedback, interest and support coming. And of course, don't forget to leave us a review wherever you subscribe to your podcast. Thank you and see you next month. Thank you so much, Simone. Remember, you can follow everything that Northern Power Women does online at northernpowerwomen.com and also on Twitter at North Power Women.
now this month's discussion panel. And a big thank you to our host, the NatWest Hub in Newcastle. Welcome to our recording of the 11th episode of the Northern Power Women podcast here in the fabulous city, one of my favourite cities, and I don't say that everywhere, of Newcastle. Big, big thank you for the NatWest Hub, home of the Accelerator for Entrepreneurs uh, here in Newcastle. The space is amazing. You need to pop in and try it out. But without further ado, I am going to introduce you to three of our fabulous panelists. So first we have Alan Gowling. He is the Director of Business Banking in the Northeast for NatWest Hub, our host today. Alan has got 30 years. I know, you wouldn't think so, would you? A business banking experience leading a team of 11 relationship managers working with organizations across the Northeast business community. Impressive, huh? Not only that, there's more. Alan is also an accredited mentor working with the Entrepreneur Accelerator Programme. Next, we have Diane Riddell, a junior software developer for the Department of Work and Pensions Digital. Diane is an advocate for empowering people, is a disability activist and blogger, and her tech experiences in software development and testing, a co-founder of DWP's Digital Voices program, and Diane has just been inducted into this year's Northern Power Women Future List. Then we've got Corinne Lewis-Ward, who is the founder of Powder Butterfly. What a beautiful name for a brand. Corinne has worked within the arts and culture sector for the last 15 years, combining her creativity with an entrepreneurial talent to build her business. Powder Butterfly produces a broad range of... I've got here kitchenware and crockery, but I've just seen some beautiful candles. I've just seen some beautiful bags and T-shirts. But and it's, each piece is decorated with a distinctive cityscape artwork available online. All products also are manufactured in the UK. So a massive big warm welcome to our panellists. Thank you so much. So as ever, we have three topics to pose to our panel, which are going to start our Northern Power Women conversations. So the first one. Last month, 10,000 firms in the UK reported their gender pay gap for the first time. We now know that not a single sector pay women more than men. And most companies have fewer women at the top. We also know that some companies argue that women choose to work part-time or not to take on demanding senior roles, hence the pay difference. Is this true? Do women really choose not to head for the top? Corinne. Um, My feeling personally is that women would choose to head to the top, but there's so many blocks in the way. Um, When I started my business many years ago, um, it was mainly because I needed flexible working around my children and there weren't jobs out there that I could do that would fit in with childcare. Um, I also think there's an interesting perception of women that head to the top. Women could be labelled as cold, bossy, pushy, difficult, whereas a man who heads to the top would be seen in a completely different light. Balancing family life and a career as well for women is much more challenging than it is for men. Um, in that a man can choose his career over parenting and it be okay. Um, but whereas women have different expectations, 
expectations from society. I think the other issue is is that when women do decide to have children, invariably uh, workplaces are not flexible enough, so they don't actually give women the opportunity to perhaps continue on with their role but in a flexible way so they don't help with childcare, they don't help that difficult stage of adjustment that women might have so I think women are ambitious but the opportunities just aren't there and society in many ways doesn't support that trajectory to the top. So what would you like to see happen next? We've had this reporting, what, what would you like to see? What would have helped you? I think it's the perception not only of women but also men that needs to change. If a man decides to be the main caregiver, then that role should be respected and both roles of uh, people going out to work or being the main childcare provider should be equally respected. I think employers need to be actually much more flexible in their attitude towards helping people move up the career ladder, especially women. Um, And also the pay gap is a real issue. it does set, tend to send a message that men men's input is valued more than women, but really your uh, input should be based upon the skills you have to offer and the talents that you have to give the company and should not be based on your gender. Thanks, Corinne. Diane, what do you think? Okay. Um, the, the rate of pay is the, the issue because you can have kind of a woman part-time on the same kind of salary as a man just reduced pro rata so it's kind of we kind of get women to negotiate their own salary and kind of become skilled with in doing that and do you think negotiation is a problem that women have yes because they're not they tend to be not confident in the skills that they have and kind of they think they're kind of unless they know something 100 percent, then that's kind of they're not skilled enough where men it's something if they're only skilled 50 percent, they'll be highly confident in their abilities so what would you like to see as the next step for we've had the reporting what would you like to see next that would help with this challenge i would like to see um more businesses sponsorship sponsor women and also kind of give opportunities to women to kind of become senior leaders so for example come delegating opportunities kind of uh, mentorship uh, and coaching job shadowing uh, those kind of things so they they take more of a a leadership role so they are gaining those skills and becoming more confident in, in, in that role. Thanks Diane. So Alan you work for a big organization do you think that women are choosing not to head to the top? I can only speak from experience. So I've um, run a business uh, in business banking for seven years. And in those seven years, I've employed more women uh, in that journey into management than I have men. Um, So I think as leaders, uh, you have to have, you have to pick the right candidate. So if if it's a woman that's the right candidate and they choose to take that next step on that career journey, then that's the right thing. And so for me, you know, we should be employing people on a, on a non-biased basis, uh, taking their skill sets and, and employing the right people in those roles. And if that's women, that's fantastic. And if that's men, that's, that's equally great. Um, but again, I'm only speaking from, a, from a my point of view in relation to my business and, uh, you know, the women were much better. <laughs> and how will the gender pay gap reporting help hinder support? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting one because in a corporate organisation like ourselves, we have pay scales. So somebody coming in that um, could be in the lower end of that pay scale is where we get those gender pay gaps, I think. So they might be just as good as somebody that has been in the business for 10 years on a higher pay gap, on a higher pay salary. And therefore, that's where your gap starts to form. Now, is that right? That's the challenge, I think. You know, if I've got somebody that's been in a business 
for 10 years developing and, and, and working in that role for 10 years and has increased their salary year on year on year and then somebody's coming it's a bit younger might be a female um, and they're coming in at the lower end of the scale is that right I'm st- I can't get my head around is it right or is it wrong to be fair I see it from both sides I see somebody that's been in the role 10 years and built up a salary but I also see it well actually they're doing the same job why aren't they say they pay, pay the same money and where does negotiation come into so is that person that's coming into the role two people going for a, uh, to negotiate a deal why is it that one person will be able to negotiate a better deal than the other that's the, that's the challenge okay. how many people in the room work for an organisation that have reported their pay gap small part of the room quarter if just a question just again another show of hands um would a company's gender pay gap reporting impact for you on whether you wanted to work for them would it now now it's out there show of hands would it would it stop you would it make you think would you look at that now okay well okay that's a big that's a big thing okay so the next question There are currently approximately 14 million disabled people in the UK. If you're disabled, you are twice as likely to be unemployed as a non-disabled person. Yet a 10 percentage point rise in the employment rate amongst disabled adults would contribute an extra £12 million to the Exchequer by 2030. What do we need to improve? The chances of people with disabilities getting into work. So what do we need to improve? Diane, I am coming your way. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not. I'm not lunging like Sam normally does. <laughs> I am hovering a little bit awkwardly. Okay, thank you. Um, basically, there's several things that need to change. First, is kind of infrastructure. I don't think we've got the right transport model. We don't have the right correct access to buildings. Um, there's also issues with kind of access to IT and kind of maybe using robotics and AI. Um, there's also it, attitudes as well. People just kind of either don't want to hire disabled people because they think it's a challenge or bother or they won't even help them kind of within the workplace. But also there's kind of once disabled people get into the workplace, do they have a career path that transitions them to like the senior levels? And at the moment, a, very, a lot of kind of disabled people stay on the lower rungs of the kind of businesses. So that's the kind of things that need to change. Uh, what have you done? So you work within a, a, a big employer, a big employer who's now created this digital voices program to, you know, some more visibility of role models. What have what was your experience been within your organisation or of other people? Okay. Um, at times it's been challenging. Um, I've kind of had to fight for a support worker. Um, kind of also kind of fight to kind of get promoted into an IT role. Um, but the thing is, it's been worthwhile because they have listened. And kind of whenever we've taken kind of disability issues to senior managers, they've, they've acted, uh, which is a good thing. However, other businesses kind of need to take that on board and kind of consider positive action pathways and kind of looking at roles of uh, kind of people with disabilities in their organisation because we do contribute. Thanks, Diane. Um, Alan, uh, what have as NatWest, as a massive organisation uh, done to attract more people with disabilities into your business or, or you know, it's a challenge for employers. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think from a human resources angle and I think we've always got to try and employ people on a very unbiased uh, positioning um, and, and whether that attracts um, somebody with a disability or not, I, I can't say that I wouldn't be able to say that oh, that's what that's what we're trying to do. You know, I think we're just we're looking for the right candidates. And if the right candidate 
is disabled, then the right candidate should get the job. Um, that's that's. But again, there are a lot of challenges to overcome in terms of people's bias, in terms of people's. Uh, you know, we, um, uh, Diane mentioned access to buildings. I think uh, resource challenges around how do we make sure that if people are at their desks, they've got the right equipment. Uh, I know that there's been a number of people with um, issues where we now. Um, uh, rolling out uh, workstations on a stand-up basis so those types of things are all helping um, but I think we've got a long way to go to to make this better um, is, is where I'm you know my experience really. Corinne? From my perspective um, I've got a fat close family member who has a disability and she worked her way right up to managerial level um, and I think that until the culture of disability changes within the workplace, so an attitude that you might actually see a disabled person as an asset, um, a lot of the blocks that are in the way for disabled pe people aren't going to change. So you could, as an employer, see that someone who suffers from a disability has overcome adversity of some kind and they have skills to offer of resilience, of um, determination, and that actually maybe they feel they need to prove themselves more than most able people as well. Um, I think until the employer sees those individuals as assets as opposed to um, problems, you're not really going to change a lot of the issues that disabled people find in the workplace. Um, so it's a cultural shift that needs to occur, I think, as well as very practical considerations that need to be made. But it also comes back to my original point about women in the workplace. I think actually flexible working has to be sort of something that employers start to consider as a viable option. So some people might actually have to work from home but they can work remotely. We have loads of digital technology at our fingertips now, so there are lots of people who might be at home but could have quite an active career from home. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be catered for in a working environment if that isn't where they need to be. Yeah, basically, I was just going to actually say that, uh, offer more flexible working and kind of let people work from home or even kind of support people to be kind of independent, um, be self-employed. Any any good practice that we've seen in the organisation, in the in the room here of businesses, any businesses here that are doing anything? Yeah, I'm coming your way. Wait a second. So I think it's around getting flexibility for all colleagues and all employees, not not just trying to label the colleagues that need some element of flexibility. So, you know, trying to get that balance of work and um, and life and all of those types of aspects. And, and I know that's what something we're looking at. So a flexible working request or thinking about working flexibly isn't because you necessarily have caring responsibilities or need some accessibility and so on. It's more about actually making the workplace work for you. And so it's a big cultural shift for us okie dokie right we're on to our last question so soon so please do everything that we talk about today just keep the conversation going if you've got any qu uh, questions or comment please join in at north power women or contact us on podcast at northernpowerwomen.com the final question it's been reported in the press recently that stereotypes in children's programs such as fireman sam and peppa pig are holding women back some girls have said that they can't be a firefighter because that's a man's job or that they want to be a nurse because only men are doctors. Until programme makers drive that change, how do we empower the next generation? Yeah, well, I think, the, I mean, in terms of programme makers, I think when you've got brands 
that are like Feynman Sam and Peppa Pig. They've been around a long, long time. So uh, my experience of having children, um, I've got a stepson, I think 30, 22 and a 14 year old. I always forget. I always forget the oldest one. So if he listens to this, I am in serious trouble. Um, but I think over the years, if I look at the, the, the children as they've grown up, I think it has improved. My son, when I asked him this question last night, he was telling me how team programmes are very much uh, geared towards um, trying to ensure that it covers all bases, that there is not a, a stereotype to be a, a firefighter. Um, and, it, you know, when I said, well, what about younger? And he couldn't really answer it because he needs to go back a little bit because he's 14 now. So I think, I think we've made progress. Um, but again, as in some of the other questions there, there is a massive cultural challenge here. Uh, does it start um, with, in terms of the children, does it also start with parents? Uh, does it start with, uh, with, um, with schools? And there are other challenges within schools, and I speak from experience because I'm also a director at an academy, where they are limited on resource. So how do we ensure that the curriculum in schools is far-reaching and ensures that um, uh, young female children um, uh, can, can do anything they want in life? Uh, and they can follow any career path that they want because uh, there's there's nothing stopping them. And how do we bring in um, people to inspire those children to say, well, I want to be like that person because she's a she's a firefighter and I just want to be like her because uh, children are impressionable. And I remember, um, you know, when I was young and who my heroes were. Uh, but I think, you know, heroes now come in all forms and shapes and sizes. Who's your hero, Alan? Rocky. <laughs> Alison, am I coming your way? Oh, um, one from the audience. Thought that that was a that was a great question. Who who are your heroes, Alan? Um, and I think you're absolutely right. I think it it um, we do need a movement though in this country because the the figures speak for themselves. And women and girls don't, for whatever reasons, access the kind of opportunity in the same proportions as as boys and men. Um, so it's toy makers, program makers. It's all of us continuing um, to create that narrative that, that says this is um, going on for far too long, um, hundreds of years, and we've got to put a stop to it. Um, I've got nieces who are five and eight, and uh, we were in charge, auntie and uncle in charge at the weekend. Um, and I asked them, you know, what, what do you want to be? And they both said teachers, but both their parents are in the education profession. So I think the parent question is, is, a, is a key thing. But let's, so you've got, you've got two, kids, two yeah. children, Corinne. So yeah. talk, let's talk about Peppa Pig and <laughs> Firefighter Sam. So Danny Cotton, who's the, her, the chief of the London Fire Brigade, uh, last month she started a campaign which was to change the language. So is language important? I think language is, but I mean, I'm in the throes of teenage world at the moment. So my daughter is heavily influenced by celebrities and very mainstream sort of role models. Um, and I think the big challenge for me is is looking at how we can change this. It's really a real difficult issue. Um, but as an independent business owner, I have to be honest, I think independent business in some, in some ways leads the way. And you do find little businesses 
popping up with fantastic creative solutions. So whether that might be a small business that starts um, gender neutral costumes for children or uh, a new book that comes out that really talks about those female heroines that have been there throughout history but re-delivers that in a unique way. I think that is a way of infiltrating the mainstream consensus that is uh, women have to have defined roles and it's those products, services and creative approaches that will then mainstream consumer sort of culture will latch onto and start replicating in probably a more diluted enough way but um, creative business can lead the way in a really important way to actually open up the market of what women and children are exposed to um, and that that would be my the the kind of thing that I would hold on to in terms of hope and I hope you're going to ask me who my hero is oh, <laughs> hold on a second Corin, I've got a question for you. <laughs> Who's your hero? It has to be Mary Portis, of course. <laughs> Thank you. Just and just we, we we talked about program makers. So I've recently started listening to Audible books because I find myself on trains a lot across the north. Um, and I list, my first one was Shonda Rhimes and the Year of Yes, mainly uh, because of her TED talk and then mainly because I like some of the programs. And it took me to listening to that book to realise that she is a program maker. She's Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, How to Get Away with Murder. And it had actually occurred to me why I love those so much. They were all really strong, feminine uh, characters. But it's something I've sat with my husband, but I hadn't sort of taken that in. So it's proof that program ma- makers don't have to be totally... You know, although saying that we all like a, a cape and an outfit, you know, but it doesn't always have to be totally explicit, the program makers. So, what do you think about stereotypes, Diane? Basically, yeah, I think you kind of need to eradicate them. Um, basically, I, I looked at the top the 50 kind of cartoon characters, and five of them were women, and all the rest Ooh. were men. So, kind of, it needs kind of women to write for women and girls, and kind of even kind of women who currently write now tend to write where the male is the lead character, and we need to more female lead characters. But also, kind of, we don't need to just write about superheroes. We need to write about normal people like doctors, teachers, kind of IT people, um, and, and and kind of bring those characters to life and just give the children a day in the life of what a doctor is. Thank you so much. As I say, please do keep this conversation going. If there's any questions that you would like to see posed on the podcast, then please, I might have mentioned it before, podcast at northernpowerwomen.com or at northpowerwomen. Um, this is just starting the conversation. Please stay, stay engaged. Please stay joined in. Thank you all of our fabulous audience here. Thank you for Nat West at Hope for hosting us here. So thank you all. Please give yourself all a superhuman round of applause. <laughs> A tremendous thanks again to all our panellists for their time and their advice. Uh, to Simone for brilliantly facilitating that discussion. And again, to our hosts in Newcastle, the NatWest Hub. We'd love to know any subjects that you would like to hear discussed on the Northern Power Women podcast. Just get in touch. Let us know. And perhaps you would like to be a future host as well. All your questions answered. Just email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Next month, we are back in Leeds to find out about the Scully effect. Keep your ears peeled for that one. 
Now it's time to learn some more and hear some great stories from someone who's made it really big in their chosen field. This month, it's Powerless member and Queen's Award winner, Elizabeth Vega, global CEO of Inform Solutions. A senior woman in the world of tech, Liz had some incredible stories to tell. And I started by asking her where the initial drive came from to set up her own business. Well, I'm the byproduct of large corporates. So like most people, uh, you follow, you start off by following a traditional career path. I did my management graduate training with Unilever, which was superb. And then I moved through um, through two other corporates. And, and actually, at each stage, I am very grateful for what I learned. I learned discipline. I learned aspects of key aspects of running a business. I learned to respect and appreciate process and a certain rigor in how you run a business. But then you get to the point where you you do hit a ceiling. It wasn't called a glass ceiling. Uh, and of course, we're talking quite a few years ago now before these things were discussed openly. But people would just have a quiet word with you and tell you that your ambitions really weren't appropriate and that you would never really make an executive board position. Um, and in those days, IT or computer services, they were called, used to report to the finance director. And so, um, you know, I realised that I'd reached the end of the viable career path for me there. So I decided, as with the arrogance of youth, that I thought, well, I've learnt what I need to run aspects of a business. I'm going to give it a go. Uh, it was a big step because, of course, you need to put... Um, your own hand in your pocket and and invest your own money. And so as you do, I spoke to my parents um, and my mum was was quite worried for me. Uh, She said, look, you know, you have a great job. Uh, It pays well. Security. Job security, you know, um, you've got a mortgage. I had a mortgage by that stage and I I was single again. And she said, are you sure? And my dad said, do you know what, Liz, you will work it out. And the interesting thing that I have found is that uh, your parents actually are a key, uh, a key determining factor as to how brave you feel. Um, and also, I think uh, your father in particular, if you're a woman, your father's belief in you, I think, is a big determining factor as to whether you'll spread your wings and do something different. How old were you when you were told you will go no further than you already are? 28. So 28 years old, you are told, this is it for you. You're never going to reach mm-hmm. those heights that you're aiming for. Was that to do with the fact you were a woman or was it to do with the saturation of the industry? Did they give you a reason why they said this is the end of the road for you at such a young age? Um, everything is always veiled, I suppose. Uh, even even in those situations, men would speak in euphemisms. But uh, it was primarily because I was a woman. I mean, I was actually a director, but it was at ops level. Uh, and as I said, reporting into a finance function, as as it used to be in those days. Um, and it just wasn't felt that uh, women um, had the skills to be on a main board. Uh, and also very traditionally, um, it was you were either sales or you were finance if you made, made bo- main board positions typically. Mm. So there you go. You have... You've got great prestige. You've got a great job in a great firm, yet there's that itch inside you saying, I know I can do more. When you took that leap with the support of your parents, was there ever a time when you thought, what have I done? (laughs) Why did I do that? I still think that. (laughs) Just depends on the day of the week. Um, Of course it is. Life's a journey. And... um, you know, anything that you take on that's really challenging is going to have its ups and downs. You know, if something's worth achieving, it's going to push you, it's going to stretch you. And you have to be okay with that. You have to be okay with it and you have to accept. I wouldn't necessarily call it failure. I would call it the opportunity to learn. I have a natural curiosity and everything can teach you something, including the people you don't want to be like. 
I don't want to be like that person, but that's okay because it crystallizes those thoughts. You know, I want to have these values. I choose to be this type of person. I choose to be this type of entrepreneur. I choose to be this type of leader. So everything in life, whether it's a bad business deal uh, or, uh, you know, a disrespectful client or an unhelpful bank manager or just staff, you know, staff issues, they all teach you stuff and they shape your character. And actually, they also influence your ambition because you just get more, well, in my case, I just got more stubborn. I think I can work through this. You talk about um, having very clear vision for the sort of business that you wanted to set up and run. And when you set up Informed Solutions, I mean, what was that clear vision? What were the foundations on which you wanted to build? I wanted to build a business. And I think the three cornerstone values of the company enshrine that, which is innovation. I am always fascinated. I have a very curious nature. I have a love of learning. And I think that keeps you young and that keeps your brain and yourself fully engaged in life. So to reimagine what's possible, um, I also wanted to do business with ethics. I had, as we all do, we go through life and we see things that we go, that's just not right. And I want to be proud of what I do. Of course, you can make good money. And by the way, I want to be well paid and I want all of my staff to be well paid. But how you make that money is important to me and it always has been. And I am the same in terms of my own investments outside of just the business. Um, so that's the integrity piece. And then there's the excellence piece. Actually, I want to be the best I can be. I don't aspire to being mediocre. I don't want to be average. And I respect anyone else's ambitions, but that's mine. And I love to surround myself with people that are can do, a little bit fearless in terms of just tackling things. And, you know, ju just accepting that life is uncertain. We all know the two things that we can count on, which is death and taxes. We all know where it goes. So actually enjoy the journey and just embrace that uncertainty and, and have a good time at the same time as doing good whilst you're, whilst you're in your job. How did you build that team? Because it's tough, isn't it, to find the people who fit. When you've got such a strong, clear vision of who you are and what your company stands for, to find those people who share those ethics but also share that drive, that's quite a tough call sometimes. How did, how did you find that team? I think a big part of it is chemistry. Um, you're right, it takes time. Relationships take time and they're like onions. I have a view that I think you need to be generous and you need to take everybody at face value, but deep trust um, takes time. And that's the, the real conversation. Um, so you get to know people in your network, you find out who you gel with, you find out who shares your values, who shares your ambition and direction of travel. And then you just in a very respectful way, you explore, hey, would this be for you? And sometimes you're a chapter of each other's lives. Sometimes it's not just the backbone. I, I have the privilege of having colleagues that I have worked with for 20 years. And you think, doesn't that get boring? It's like, no, because the job is never the same. It evolves over time. And um, if you have that that continuity, it is such a privilege because we all have awful things happen in our lives. I lost my dad three years ago, and I am so deeply grateful for my colleagues that rallied around, and they just said, get on a plane and do what you need to do, mm. and we will take care of the business. And that doesn't happen a lot in corporate life, you know? And then there are other people that have been a chapter of the company's um, evolution, and we've had clients that have joined us for a period, um, and and they have added a richness and a new dimension, but then they've either retired or they've moved on, and that's okay as well. And I think the most important thing is that you have respect for each other and that you're clear about what you want from each other in terms of expectations. And if those change, mm -hmm. again, have that respectful conversation. So what about your management style in all of this? Because obviously you are steering the ship. Did you create a framework 
of your management style ahead of it? Did you did you have coaching? Did you go to mentors for that? Did you do courses or did it organically develop? How do you become a great manager? <laughs> um, I think you have to like people. I don't mean I like every human being on the planet, but I actually I'm fascinated by people. I'm interested in what in what uh, motivates them. Um, and I think the team dynamics are more important than almost anything else. And smart people learn. So if, you, if they're motivated by the right things and they have an aptitude, you send them on a course and they learn. The things that you can't send people on a course on is things like self-motivation, things like having a bit of positive ambition, respect for others. Those things are much, much harder to teach. Um, so in terms of how you develop your, yourself, really, particularly when you're the number one and you have to look around you. You have to learn from everyone, including your own people. Be humble. I love it when I sat down and I spoke to one of our um, one of our placement students, and he was telling me about how he was actually doing R and D on artificial intelligence on one of our projects for the National Health uh, National Health Service. And this young man is only 20, 21 years old. And I was fascinated. It's like, oh, so that's how it works. Because we all know the buzzwords. Just have that humility of listening to others. And I think also invest in yourself. Go on courses. Meet other people. Find out what works for them. Um, you know, and I have learned techniques from in other individuals. I have absorbed some of those techniques and made them authentically me. Mm. I don't want to sound like anybody else, but there are things, uh, for example, I'm quite an impatient person. I have a very fast mind, and I have learned that I have to slow down and make sure that I, everyone follows the conversation uh, because otherwise I just I lose my uh, I lose my followers, and then you can't be a leader. Mm. Those are examples. You're a global CEO. You're CEO here in the UK. Mm-hmm. In a tech company, you are a woman, a very senior woman in the world of tech. How is that sector right now for women? Well, there's a lot of discussion, but the reality is if we look at, for example, Silicon Valley, only 14% of women are directors, and that isn't that is just board-level directors. 0.8% of women are in executive director, which is decision-making roles. 0.8%. And that is shocking. That is the heart or, you know, what we hold, hold up as role models for tech. And that isn't a role model for me. I'm really sorry. And I, I don't want to buy into that into that pretense. Um, even in the UK at the moment, 28% women are paid 28% less than men for the same role. Excuse me, that's illegal the last the time. The same role. The same role. Because we heard about gender pay reporting of the fact that yep. women in no sector are in as many senior roles as men. But this is within the same role. This is in 2017, the emolument uh, study showed that women in the UK in technology-related jobs earn like for like 28% less than men doing the same jobs. That's because they're not good at negotiating, of course. It's because we don't stand up and ask is what we're always told. That's partly the, that's partly the case, mm. uh, but 28% is not necessarily a negotiation point. I think it's your starting point as well. And that what I would question is the values of a company that um, you have to always... Um, you always have to put your foot down in order to get something that's fair. So those are reasons why I think, you know, women, um, and I'm not saying that's the journey for everyone, women that feel that they are have an appetite for risk, that they actually have built up a body of experience and have got good judgment as regards what it takes to run a business, I honestly suggest that you consider setting up your own business or set up a business with other people that share your views. Mm. And that that includes men. I mean, my business partner is actually a male, a very modern guy, um, 
and uh, and and actually the other board, a lot of the other board members are male as well. And we've got a female board director out of Australia, so we've got a really diverse workforce. But they have to share your common values. So think about starting your own business. We hear a lot of stories in the press about about the culture within tech and the way that women are viewed by, of course, not every tech firm. But there's some pretty shocking stories that come out of Silicon Valley of the way that, mm-hmm. that women quite often don't feel safe in a tech environment, especially at large conferences. A lot of that's leadership. And I'm going to put it, you know, there's an old uh, u- an old euphemism, the fish rots from the head down. And I think that is true. And I will probably, you know, um, put myself into a difficult position of having to defend that. But that's just my anecdotal experience. Mm. And I'm entitled to have my own experience. Uh, but fundamentally, look at the leadership and look at how they behave. And that will tell you what is tolerated within an organisation. Um and a lot of it is insidious. You know, if you had a if you had a, a slam dunk case, you would probably end up in court or in tribunal. But it isn't. It's just a gradual wearing you down of, um, you know, of the pub sessions of the, uh, you know, the golf the golf um, business happens on the golf course of, you know, all these things that are just meant. Just the action itself is meant to be um, exclu- exclude people. Mm. Um, so even the drinking culture, I mean, I, I joke and I do love a good cocktail, but I am not a heavy drinker at all. And so uh, I have adapted to that. But, you know, if a lot of the serious deals are cut in a bar, um, you have to decide whether that is for you or you have to adapt. And I'm a pragmatist. I adapted. Uh, instead of having a gin and tonic, I have tonic water with a fresh of lime and a swizzle stick and I tip the barman to make sure, you know, he takes care of me in the evening. You know, but um, you have to make a decision what is right for you. Yeah. You are now considered throughout the whole industry as a as a key industry thought leader. As a woman, though, did you ever struggle having your voice heard in tech? I still do, to be totally honest with you. It's really interesting to see people's reactions. I'm very low-key. I'm very Aussie in that way. Um, actually, that's very north of England as well. You're just relaxed. You don't need to stand on ceremony. And people misunderstand that. Um and so they, you're underestimated, and I laugh about it because by the time they don't underestimate me, then, you know, quite frankly, um, I've usually got what I want. Um, so, you know, everything can be to used to your advantage if you have the right mindset. Even nowadays, people talk to me and they assume I'm not numerate. I'm not a finance practitioner. I'm an, I'm an economist, so I have a slightly different view of the world, but I'm very definitely numerate. But I'm talking to finance guys, and they're talking the language of accountants, and that's okay. Uh I can clearly run a company and be very successful mm-hmm. about it. So I just don't – you just develop a thick skin over it, if that makes sense. Yeah. But it still happens even now. Looking forward, looking to the future, I know that you're meeting with uh, the Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, this week, in mm-hmm. fact, to talk about how to close not just the gender pay gap but the gender split within tech. That's one side of – of how tech needs to develop. There's also issue, of course, about the digital skills shortage. And I know as part of the panel for the podcast this week, we're talking about the fact that there's, you know, robots, let's just use that word and throw it out there, you know, robots look to take 80 million jobs by 2030. We're faced, aren't we, on the one hand, by saying how are workplaces and workforces going to adapt to take that change on? And yet on the other side, we know that we've got a huge digital skills shortage going on. Is there enough time, really, for us to catch up and deal with both these issues? Well, I want to start off by commending Andy Burnham because leadership is not easy in the current times. Uh, It's almost like whatever you do, it's never enough. And you can appease 
some people, but then you will not appease others. So he's in a difficult situation and um, he has he has needed to take some time to do a reconnaissance of what that landscape looks like. And it is, it's got quite a number of moving parts and, and you're quite right, Sam. We have on the one hand, uh, children and young people coming out of universities with you know with huge student loans, and they are not equipped for the skills for the jobs of the future, because the the teaching is not necessarily keeping the curricula I should say is not keeping pace with the marketplace developments, and on the other hand, uh, you have um, you have a lot of young people that are looking for jobs. So the the obvious connection, the gap in there, is how do you re-educate? How do you reskill? But that's also not just true true for young people, as you quite rightly pointed out, as the workforce needs new skills because of robotics um, and uh, and AI, machine learning and automation, we need to reskill those people as well. We need to make them re-employable. So how can we facilitate them picking up the skills that allow them to contribute to our economic prosperity? I just want to take a moment to congratulate you because you've had one heck of a few months, actually. I mean, you were um, uh, on the Northern Power Women Power List, of course, but nominated at the awards this year for Transformational Leader. And a small matter of uh, an award from the Queen. Tell me more about that. For her birthday, of course, that took place last month. Oh, no, we were thrilled. Um, I think you could hear the the whooping all the way across to Australia. Um, Of course, you're given a little bit of early notice, but you're not allowed to tell anybody. Uh, Even my family didn't know. That was harsh. That was harsh. (laughs) So when we actually did, um, we did tell all the staff on Friday, it was just euphoria. I mean, I think it's a combination of you work so hard at something, you have to have strength and conviction over it. And that's not just me. I'm talking about everybody in the company. We do have a lot of heavy lifting. And to have that level of recognition from, you know, absolutely the benchmark in terms of, you know, standards of of, of, uh, a British company's excellence and integrity, of course, Mm. they actually make sure that uh, you, you know, you may be financially very successful, but if you're if you have questionable business practices, then they don't award you that. So, really, as a testimonial, we're absolutely thrilled. So, the Queen's Award uh, for Innovation, the only tech company in the Northwest to get that. I mean, tech. People might think of London as being the, the the leaders in so many sectors, but there is a huge, huge power force behind tech here in the North. Um, yes, there is. And again, I think um, Annie Burnham is behind that ambition. Um, and um, we have got a heritage of industry here. We have manufacturing. Uh, we are a transportation hub. We're the gateway to uh, to a large part of the world with the Manchester Airport Group, of course, and the, and the inbound investment there. Um, we have got Media City on our door. Uh, we have got an incredibly rich and diverse heritage of industry and innovation, and it's just the next generation of that innovation. Mm. Nowadays, it's about tech and digital, and the convergence of those things with traditional sectors, like, for example, transportation networks, how to make those smart, cities, how to make cities smart, and, of course, manufacturing, how to improve our productivity, because the UK hasn't got a a hugely successful record of productivity as an economy, how to actually completely re-energise our manufacturing by making that smart too. You've talked so passionately about having having the drive and the will to take that plunge to set up on your own, especially if you're a woman, to how to build that team of like-minded people around you and how to build uh, a business that you are proud of on an ethical level and not just a financially successful level. Bearing all that in mind, what one thing now do you believe would make tech a better place for women to work and grow their businesses? 
That is a really difficult question because there are so many. It is actually deeply ingrained prejudices. Again, that is just my opinion, uh, and I am not the definitive authority, but like everyone, I'm entitled to my view. It is deeply ingrained prejudices in a lot of areas where you need access to capital, um, where, for example, um, you're bidding for work uh, and you turn up and there isn't the expectation that it will be you know, a man. Um, so all of those things we need we need to raise awareness. Uh, the Me Too campaign. It's not always about just um, inappropriate conduct um, of, of of a sexual nature. It's inappropriate um, behaviours really of a discriminatory nature, and that's where that's what we need to tackle. So it's a culture change, hearts and minds. We we can have a rational debate, and everyone knows the rational debate financially. Uh, companies outperform if they've got a diverse board, but it's just cracking the old clubs and having and having women pull up other women as well. Having that generosity of spirit, if you've managed to make a breakthrough, help others up as well. Many thanks to the tremendous Elizabeth Vega for her time and her honesty as well. If you'd love to hear someone on this podcast, just let us know. Get nominating. Email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Next up, a terrific subject in this month's Ask the Hive, the place where you ask a question and get a whole host of advice from the Northern Power Women Collective Brain. This month is a thing so many of us hate doing, selling ourselves. So when it comes to an interview or an opportunity for promotion, I struggle with selling myself. So are there any tips that anyone can offer to help me do that? Years ago when I had interviews, you would often get asked the questions, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses? And they're quite difficult questions to answer because you don't want to bring up anything terribly negative. But I think maybe having someone objective or someone who knows you quite well to talk about that and actually come up with a list of strengths so you know you're armed with those to answer that question. But also maybe come up with weaknesses, but also uh, potential strategies and how you deal with those weaknesses and that can maybe help an employer see that you're good at acknowledging where you might have faults but also seeing where you can make improvements upon that. I think one of the things about, you know, if if you're sort of uh, reluctant to sell yourself in in terms of interviews, in terms of promotion, it's it's practice. Just keep practicing, 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 practice with friends, practice with colleagues. And because sometimes you get asked those questions in an interview that come come out of left field, and it does make you nervous. So you know, get your get your friends, get your colleagues to push those difficult questions. And the more practice you get, the more confident you'll become. And it's not a case of anything. I have to sell myself. You're doing the selling anyway because you've just got that confidence behind you. And, and confidence is really key. Uh, but you only get the confidence often if you do that practice. If you really put the effort into it. My advice for someone that finds themselves in a position where they need to sell themselves is prepare, research the company, their work, how you fit into their criteria and work values. Be confident because no one's going to invest in you if you don't invest in yourself. Hello, my name's Kate Cocker. I'm the presenter coach and talking to people about how to sell themselves is something I find myself doing with my clients quite a lot. Here's some tips to help you forward. So number one, to avoid that feeling of bragging, shift your mindset so that instead of walking in and thinking I've got to go in and tell them how great I am puke that's going to make me feel really uncomfortable 
Think about going in and talking about how you can help solve their problems, how you can help add to value to the business, how you can help move the business forward. If you think about it from that point of view, where you are contributing and helping and, and supporting a business, that makes it a bit easier to go, this is what my skill set is and this is how it can fit into the business. Tip number two, get clear on what you want them to know before you go in. What you want them to know about you. So then you have to make sure that you've got a couple of stories to back that up. Uh, and your stories about your experiences are what make you you, and it's what they're going to pick up on. So think about before you go in what you've learned, what you're proud of, when it was tough, how you dealt with that, and construct some stories around what happened and, and how you came out the other side. That's going to be a lot easier for you to talk about than just talking about, oh, I'm great because I've got this skill and that skill. If you can give clear examples, that's going to really help you sell yourself. And the third sneaky thing is that sometimes you can sell yourself without literally words coming out of your mouth saying, I've done this, I've done that. And actually, what the one the, a really good way to sell yourself is to really create a challenging moment for the people that you're speaking to, get them to think in a different way, get them to move the way that they're thinking forward. And one area that this can work really well is in the questions that you take in. So if you can take some really good strong questions in that you either ask at the end or throughout the interview, you can create a moment of discussion where you can then bring more about your experiences to the table, but on your terms a little bit. So it, it's, a, it's slightly different, but actually if you can take a question and turn it into a question that then turns into a discussion, you're engaging with those people and, and enabling yourself to sell yourself without really just going, this is what I've done and this is how I do it. First of all, I would make a list of all my good points, the skills I have, and then use positive words to describe them. So I think I've got kind of two tips. Uh, one is linked to CVs. So one of the things that I've noticed through the, the many years of, of, of trawling through CVs for the right candidates is to start with uh, the, the results in mind. So what are the fantastic results that you have achieved within the various roles that you've done and really bring them to life? I used to see a lot of CVs from people that just detail what the job was, what the job did, and sometimes you kind of know what the job descriptions are for some generic roles, certainly in banking you might do. Um, so when I uh, am interviewing people from, uh, certainly in the bank, it's very much about, look, tell me what the fantastic things you're doing and make them stand out and make me go, wow, that's fantastic. Also, the other bit within the CVs is sometimes what their interests are. There's been some fantastic people come across, uh, come through uh, uh, the interview process where they've got brilliant um, other interests that are really quirky. Uh, you know, one guy at a coffee shop and he was talking to me about how he, how, how coffee was made and everything about coffee and I was just blown away and he wanted a bank manager's job bank manager's job so that was really good um, so that was that's one thing on the CVs the second thing is it's, it's, a, it's a steal mind it's a steal from Stephen Corvey and the uh, seven highly highly effective habits uh, and that is to start with the end in mind so again it comes back to uh, when people are coming to the interview process uh, again, what are those results and what are the actions that got you to the results? Because I find that people find it very difficult to explain their actions and then they tack, they, they tack on to the end of the, the process oh, and, and these were my results. Whereas if you focus on what were the fantastic achievements, um, you know, how did it all work out? What did you achieve? How many people did you help? Um, if there's league tables, which sometimes there is sadly, you know, where were you and, and make it look wow. But by the way, then reverse those actions and come in, come in prepared with those actions but start with your best results in mind.
Thank you to everyone who sent in their advice this month. You all get a gold star and an extra biscuit with your brew. Brilliant stuff. Now this month, it's our very first man on Ask the Hive. Welcome to the Northern Power Women podcast, Ryan. I graduated in August 2017. It's now May. I really want to work in the construction design industry and I can't seem to get onto a graduate scheme. I have emailed people, apply for jobs and even apply for work experience, but to no success. Can anyone give me some advice on how to get into a graduate scheme? Can you give Ryan any advice? What experience can you bring when it comes to clever ways of breaking into an industry when you think all roads are closed off to you? We'd love to hear from you. You can either record a voice memo on your phone and email it to podcast at northernpowerwomen.com or open up WhatsApp on your phone. Add the Northern Power Women podcast on 07928 387 712. That's 07928 387 712. Just hold the little microphone icon and your message screen, answer away, and your thoughts will come direct to us. If you need those details again, you can find them online at northernpowerwomen.com. So there we go for another month of great stories, great advice and great ideas. Please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcast from and tell everyone you have ever met to come and have a listen. It would mean a huge amount to us. So thank you. Set your alarm. The next episode arrives on Monday, the 4th of June. And until then, this is the Northern Power Women podcast. I'm Sam Walker. And this has been a What Goes On media production for Northern Power Women. Northern Power Women.